Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And uh, we actually just haven't recently recommended to you any great Agora Podcast shows in the past, I don't know, six months. And I feel bad about it. So I wanted to recommend one of my like kind of sneaky sleeper favorite shows in the group. It's not one of the really big ones yet. But it's one of my favorites because I love to, to read the Western canon. I love, you know, everything from like Shakespeare to Socrates. And so I will often go listen to The Cannonball. That's canon with one N, like the Western canon. It's a pun. So go look up The the, the Cannonball on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever, you know, you get your podcast these days. And what they do is they will read a great book from the Western canon and then talk about it. And you can read along and follow along with them. It's like having your own awesome book club. I don't know if that's part of their promotional material, but hey, if you're listening, it should be. I fell in love with them when I was actually about to go on a first date uh, from someone with someone I met on, you know, a, a dating profile. And it said her favorite book was Essays by Montaigne. And I had to go read it really fast and because uh, I had like a week. And so I read it and also listened to the three-part series on Montaigne by the Cannonball and felt very informed and educated and intelligent talking about it. And I can say with great aplomb that after that first date, said lady and I are still together three and a half years later, happy as clans. And uh, so I, you know, I therefore attribute the love of my life or, you know, the, the help with, with getting past that first date bar with the love of my life to Cannonball. So Cannonball, thank you very much. Everyone else, go listen to them. It's a solid show. And that's a sweet story. Eric. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> From Nashville came a dark horse riding Today, we're excited about doing something that's not foreign policy. We've kind of been on that <laughs> kick for the last month or so with all of the really excellent interviews we've had with Jacob Shapiro and Yiftah Berman, but we've talked a lot about Iran. So today, we're going to talk about something completely different, and it's one of our favorite types of shows because it's a request from one of our patrons on patreon.com. If you haven't given a buck to the show, 
check out patreon.com slash reconsider, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Uh, helps us keep the show going, helps us get the message out. But this request is from a patron, Chris. And he asked, given that we are now heading into primary season for the 2020 presidential election, to do something on brokered conventions. So we're going to talk about what that even means, where we are in the primary process, and what a lot of the different outcomes could be, what they've been in the past. Yeah, Chris is actually, he's a pretty astute observer and and we get to chat with him every now and then. And he mentioned that the bro- going over broker conventions was probably particularly interesting in part because Mayor Michael Bloomberg decided to enter the race really late, not participate in any of the debates, not bother, and just throw a giant pile of his billionaire money at the whole thing and, and uh, see if he can get some traction. And you know, because Bloomberg sort of doesn't stand a bloody chance in Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, South Carolina, Nevada, where generally speaking, people get their momentum, um, it would suggest that that there's something going on in Bloomberg's head that makes him think a broker convention could be likely. And he would want to go in, not necessarily with most of the delegates, but over time, get most of the support. That is Chris's kind of, it's not even quite a hypothesis, but um, it, it was what got him thinking about, you know, you know, why is Bloomberg in the race and, and could there be a brokered convention? And there are a few reasons to think we might have a brokered convention in 2020. And we'll get into what that means. Uh, but we just checked. So today is February 2nd, 2020, which is, I know, just a day before the Iowa caucuses. So you're going to be listening to this after uh, you know the outcome, and we're talking about it before we know the outcome, so it's kind of lame, but exciting in some ways, depending on what happens. So we looked on 538, and you know Nate Silver loves to do all sorts of Monte Carlo simulations and other, other analysis, and, and come up with some magic numbers. And Mr. Silver is currently projecting that Joe Biden will go into the convention with the lead of 1,700 Pledge delegates, uh, which is out of the 1,990 that he needs for an outright majority. So almost 300 short. Mr. Sanders is projected to get about 1,300. Who knows, you know, whether that's true. But just with with what we know right now, if you're going to Vegas, you got about 16% odds on nobody going into the convention with a majority. The highest odds are Mr. Biden in first with 44%, and Mr. Sanders in second with 30%. But after that, the next most likely outcome, according to Silver's magic prediction machine, is 16%. Nobody gets majority, which means maybe there could be a brokered convention. And all that means is when, you, when we get to the Democratic convention or the primary convention on either party, if either side, does, if one candidate does not have a majority of delegates pledged to them, then there's no clear winner, essentially, in the primary process. And there needs to be some sort of process that that ensues in which a winner is found. So the term brokered actually comes from uh, a little time back when there would be power brokers in each party who, if that were to happen, would do all the horse trading, right? That's sort of where that term comes from or one of the places where that term comes from. And the outcome would then be brokered by these individuals. This would be a smoke-filled room kind of scenario. Yeah, exactly. Nate Silver takes some issues with that terminology, and we'll get to that in a minute, but that's what we mean by brokered convention. And 
we we're gonna cite Nate Silver a lot just because I I think he's sort of the best place to go for data driven analysis of these particular types of electoral situations. And I think it's worth clearing up what I think is a misinterpretation of a lot of 538's work. For example, in 2016, a lot of people say, oh, he got it wrong. He just assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And that's not, that's not how statistics works. It's not how probability works, right? There's a 25% chance that Donald Trump was going to win in 2016, according to 538's model. And that means that once every four times that the election scenario is run, Donald Trump won. So probability is doing our best to understand an uncertain world and try to define what those uncertainties are best as we can understand them. So when we're talking about all these probabilities, just keep that in mind. If you're not super familiar with probability theory and statistics, it's all grappling with varying degrees of uncertainty. Yes. So, uh, and the numbers that I just dropped above that, you know, I, 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 thanks for pointing that out, Xander, because I was putting air quotes around magic prediction machine here in part for that exact reason. And of course, nobody can see the air quotes on a podcast. So <laughs> Xander were just my air quotes on that. And, you know, so, so, but those percentages of, you know, statistical probability of someone not going into the convention with the majority are higher now than they have sometimes been in the past, which makes this an interesting time to talk about it. So the first thing we need to clarify is what is a brokered convention? And in short, a brokered convention is when a candidate at one of the national conventions who picked the party nominee for president does not get an outright majority of delegate votes in the first ballot. And what that means is that it then goes on to a second ballot. And what's really important about this is that coming into the convention, many of the delegates, not all, that's why, you know, there are super delegates and such, but many of the delegates have their votes pledged in the first ballot based on how the states voted during the primary process. So if they, you know, if, if you've got all these of, of, I forget how many, it's something like nearly 4,000 delegates, which is a lot of people. If the majority of those are pledged to vote for a certain candidate, then voila, we know the outcome going in, which happened in 2012 with Mr. Romney. It happened in 2016 with uh, Mrs. Clinton and Mr. Trump. It happened in 2008 with Mr. Obama and Mr. McCain, right? So these were all very predictable uh, because these guys went in with clear majorities of these pledged delegates. And so in the first ballot of the convention, ta-da, you had your candidate officially enshrined. But there have been times in the past and there could be times in the future when that majority is not there. And the first time the, the roll call is called, uh, the roll is called, I guess, and the votes come in. You don't have a majority. At which point, the pledged delegates can now do whatever they want. And the brokering, the horse trading can come right on back in. So that is what a broker convention is. We were talking about this before we hit record on the episode today, but just trying to understand all of the steps 
that occur in the primary nomination process is kind of mind-boggling. It's like an exceedingly complicated process. This is not straightforward at all. And there's so many things that can change and either go wrong or it's just, it's complicated, right? This is not an easy thing to understand. Yeah, the way I model it is somewhere between a truly private party process and a, you know, kind of first pass election. It is neither of those. So if you look to the United Kingdom or many parliamentary countries, the person running, you know, they, they have a prime minister and the prime minister is picked among the people, uh, among the, the MPs, the members of parliament um, that are uh, that are sitting in the House. Right. And, and the, the party with the majority picks their candidate for prime minister and they just get together and they vote. So it's a little bit like an old school convention without the primaries. And even the people who are picked to run for MP are picked by the party. And then you show up and your only vote that you cast, there are there are many exceptions to this, but in the United Kingdom, for example, the vote that you cast is for a bunch of people that are on the ballot that the parties just picked on their own to be there. You cast your vote. The person who wins the most in your district is now a member of parliament. And then of those members of parliament, of the majority party, that forms the official Her Majesty's government that party picks their prime minister. Typically, they make clear who that person's going to be ahead of time, which is why we can talk about Jeremy Corbyn versus Boris Johnson. But so that's that process, right? The party just picks who they're going to be. And then there is a runoff process for presidents like you might have in France, where you have all sorts of people running. Um, and technically, in the US, you have all sorts of people running, but who cares, right? But in France, you have all sorts of people running. You vote once, then there's two left, and then you vote again for the two that are left to see who gets it, which is kind of like what the primary system seems to be. You have a lot of people, you vote, you clear it down to two, and then you vote again, right? But the problem is it's not an official government process. It's not an official election. The parties get to set their own rules, their private institutions, and those rules are crazy complicated. We are not in this show even going to be able to get into all the murky nuance and detail of exactly how many superdelegates uh, you get. And during the ballot, you know, what are the rules under which you can switch your votes? And per state, why do some of them vote early and some of them later? And per state, which states award their delegates more proportionally or closer to winner takes all or completely winner takes all than others? Ah, right. So we're not even gonna get to all that. Just know, like, it's cr- it's crazy messy. And if you live overseas and you're wondering, oh my gosh, how do how do Americans possibly understand this? The answer is we don't, right? <laughs> like, like I, I even don't, right? And so I don't ex- really expect everyone else to know all the rules. The hope that we have most of the time is that you go, okay, of say Democrats, most of them voted in the primary, like cast their ballot in the primary for, let's say, Hillary Clinton in 2008. Most of them cast their ballot for her and she won. And that seems pretty good. That seems to to mesh. Although, of course, there's all sorts of ways that the parties manipulate who gets the most attention and who gets the the limelight and who gets, you know, kind of airtime and who gets support and endorsements in order to influence people's vote and all sorts of stuff. It's crazy pants. And we're only going to try to explain one part of it. Right. And I will throw a little bit more nuance in here as if there wasn't already enough. When Nate Silver writes about 
his model predicting a 15% probability that no candidate gets a majority of delegates, he is very exacting in his language. He says he that the 538 model is not trying to forecast anything that happens beyond that first round of delegates being pledged. And in that discussion, he goes on to talk about what he even thinks about the term broker convention, and he feels it's a little bit of an outdated term because today the Democratic primary voting process, if it does get to this sort of round two, he argues it's a lot more democratic than it used to be in times past when the party was or the vote was brokered by these powerful entities or powerful individuals in the party. But that doesn't mean that there aren't powerful entities in the Democratic Party. And if you'll recall the 2015-2016 Democratic primaries, there's a fair amount of contention over the superdelegates, which are, without getting into detail, essentially a way for party elites to exercise a certain amount of influence over the process. But point is, Nate Silver doesn't like the term brokered conventions necessarily. He likes the term contested conventions, which he means the outcome of the first vote is undecided when the convention starts. But he says because brokered convention is such a widely used term that it's substantially synonymous with contested convention, and he's okay with it. And I just wanted to throw that out there in case anyone else is familiar with that nuance and wanted to know about it. So we've really got three possible scenarios going into a convention. One of them is which is the one that we talked about with McCain and Obama and Clinton and Romney and Trump, all those folks in which they have a majority of pledged delegates. Congratulations. You're just doing a victory lap at the convention center, right? We know that you've won. We know you're going to be the party's nominee. On the other end of the spectrum, there is a totally brokered convention in which the first vote fails, the first ballot fails to, a, you know, fails to get a, a majority of delegates for a single candidate, at which point it can go into crazy town. And then the third one in between, which is we don't know if the first vote is going to lead to a majority. That's where some of those superdelegates can come in because not everyone's vote is bound. And so you go and you go, wow, someone's close to a majority, but they don't quite have it. I wonder what's going to happen. And it may be the case, as it has in times past, that it isn't clear going in, but that first vote, that first ballot does yield a majority, at which point it is not a broker convention. Silver may call it contested. I, we might call it non-deterministic that kind of thing where, you know, everyone's holding their breath. That ballot actually matters, but it, you know, the first time it went through and everyone goes, whew. So those are the three options that we're going to be talking about. Now, of course, whenever we're dealing with a complicated political process like this, it's useful to look at what's happened in the past. Not necessarily because you'll find perfect analogies, but because understanding the different ways it could play out gives you a better sense of the probabilities of what may happen. So let's talk a little bit about the history of brokered conventions in the U.S. And the history of primaries themselves is fairly complicated. From the 1830s on, congressional caucuses, which had played a critical role in nominating the presidential candidate on each party, those slowly started being replaced more and more by state primaries, where voters 
rather than just the party bosses, became more involved in that nomination process. And then throughout the 20th century, more states began adopting this system called binding primaries, in which the state's delegates would be assigned either in total, and these winner-take-all states, or proportionally by votes. So this, this primary process was not always built into the system and has become more prevalent as time has gone on. Yeah, and you can imagine some of the the demo, you know democratic urges in the United States that that happened that started leading people to go. Wait a minute, we just you know there's only two bloody options. We can't just have the party bosses telling us who they're going to be. Senses of corruption that were you know that came around in multiple points in the 1800s, particularly the Gilded Age, which is followed by a democratic you know a more democratizing push during the Progressive Era um, that got you know that got the the common man, right, as long as they're a registered party member, which you don't even so much need to be anymore in all states, but we're not even going to get into that, but in which the, you know, the common man got involved in binding some of these delegates so that their voice could at least partially be heard. Now, before we get into the next part of the history, I have a fun fact. So I went and did the research and I said, okay, we've had a bunch of Berkeley conventions in the past, multiple, you know, multiple ballots. Who had the most? And the answer is, in 1924, a candidate named Davis for the Democratic National Convention clinched the nomination after 103 ballots at the convention. So the delegates had to vote 103 bloody times. Presumably, they had to order a bunch of pizza, take bathroom breaks. And uh, I'm just imagining that it was like, I don't know, electing the Pope. And, you know, people outside would be waiting with bated breath and they'd see black smoke and black smoke. And then finally blue smoke, the blue smoke would come out. And it was like, oh, my God, there's a presidential candidate. Who's it going to be or a nominee? Who's it going to be? And then they come out and it was like, oh, right. So uh, it's never gotten anywhere close to that bad in any in any other convention. Um, and as you can imagine, probably a lot of compromise candidates going on. If you've ever heard the song uh, James K. Polk by... Uh, they might be giants. Uh, the 1848 election, compromise candidates. He was a compromise candidate. They are not all too infrequent in those in those kinds of situations. I have not heard that song by They Might Be Giants. There you go. Well, now you need to. Uh, ooh, maybe we'll play. Oh my gosh! I figured out that I'm allowed to play clips of songs, so I, I will do that in this one as well. Yes! Hooray! <laughs> So there's, as we mentioned a minute ago, there's a couple of ways of looking at how binding these conventions are. So either it can be brokered or, as Nate Silver prefers the definition, it can be contested where the outcome is not certain at the beginning of the convention. So a contested or undetermined convention. And last time that the first vote of of, uh, a convention did not result in a winner was in 1952. So it was a while ago. And in 1952, the convention therefore became a brokered one. So the vote didn't, there wasn't any clear winner in the vote. So you had the party bosses sort of step in and start the the horse trading. And this actually happened for both parties in 1952. And then after that, there have been a number of sort of close calls, these undetermined or contested conventions that did not yield multiple ballots at the convention, but it wasn't clear going in. So in 1968, Hubert Humphrey uh, famously won the Democratic nomination in the first vote, but without winning a single primary vote. 
So there were 20 states doing primaries at the time. Hubert Humphrey managed to not win any of those outright. You know, obviously did pretty well in a number of them. But yeah, he he got the he got it in the first vote uh, in part because of proportional representation, you know, proportional assignment, not representation, assignment of those delegates. And then, of course, like the other 30 states delegates plus all the superdelegates managed to like at the last second come together after a bunch of chaos to decide, OK, we're all just going to vote Hubert Humphrey and it's totally going to work out great. And then he got obliterated by Richard Nixon, who did carry a lot of support among Republicans uh, and and after that, there was this sort of trauma that the the parties wanted to reduce the the chaos and uncertainty of these conventions. They wanted much more momentum coming through them rather than holy crap, who's this guy? Right, like we just spent all this time campaigning, and now blah, who's this guy? Uh, you know, we don't even know who the person's going to be, so we have to be like ready to reset and change. You know, all that stuff. So. They rolled out a lot more primaries of these binding primaries to other states besides those first 20 in order to have this, um, you know, have have more pledged delegates going into the convention um, and have the, you know, the person who popped out, one, be more predictable and two, be be in better touch with, um, you know, with what people wanted uh, in the crowd so that they'd have more support. So the likelihood of a truly brokered convention after that plummeted precipitously. Right. And as the trend continued to have a better idea of how momentum would carry a particular candidate into the convention, as that sort of built up steam, the last time you really had a situation like this where there was only a minority of states with those binding primaries was in 1984 when Walter Mondale won the DNC nomination. And in some ways, then that was the last open convention in which the candidate was not determined before the convention, but did end up winning in the first round of votes. And something similar happened before then in 1980, 1976, and 1972 with both parties. Yeah. And in fact, in those three that Xander just mentioned, so 80 for 1980 for the Democrats, 76 for the Republicans, and 72 for Democrats. I know dates are are, are just hopeless with podcasts, so don't worry about the dates. But a few times in the 70s, delegates from some states actually shifted their votes from their original pledges in the middle of the first ballot to make sure that the leading by far candidate was nominated on the first ballot in order to avoid that brokering. So these these delegates are pledged, but not by law. Right. And as we've talked about before, even with the, you know, it's it's people actually often get the, the primary process and the electoral college confused because they're similar in structure in a lot of ways. Right. Like you have a vote in your state and then technically your vote, you vote for these people to go represent you and they go pick stuff and, and legally are they bound and actually neither of them. So like people get confused between like for, for again, good reason. Note to people overseas. We don't really understand it either. But you're still voting for people to go kind of represent you. And that group could just say, all right, F it, right? We're just going to support Walter Mondale. We're going to get this thing done. We're going to ha- crack a beer and go home. Um, and that happened three times because, you know, nobody came in with, with just, you know, nobody came in with quite over 50% of the delegates pledged that they needed. And so, and so, you know, it's very dramatic. And yeah, I was alive for none of this. I assume it was a lot of fun. 
if you're looking in from, from the outside and don't really care about the outcome. And so since 1984, every convention has had a candidate that went in with well over 50% of the pledged delegates into that convention. So it was super obvious going in who, who would win, nice and, nice and simple, nice and democratic-seeming, and uh, predictable, right, and, and calm. So it's, you know, it's been 36 years, but it doesn't have to stay that way, right? It is not inevitable that candidates will get that 50% going in every time. Yeah, and it wasn't actually until 92, so this was in our lifetime, mm. that Democrats had primaries in 40 states and Republicans similarly had primaries in 39 states. So it has taken a long time for the current system to sort of congeal around yeah. what it currently is with all the inertia that's been going on over time. And it's still extraordinarily opaque and difficult to understand, and most Americans don't get it. So that is how we do it here in the U.S. of A, folks. But wait, there's more. What about superdelegates, Sander? Oh, no, superdelegates? What are superdelegates? De- super well, those are those things that... Things. There are people. They are humans. <laughs> <laughs> They are, they they are, are these roles, amorphous to be blobs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Sentient gas clouds. Soylent green, yeah. Eric, is yeah. made of superdelegates. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so even though the primary process has become more democratic over time and we have had more open primaries, both the DNC and GOP still have these things called superdelegates. And as in the 2016 election with Democrats, they are a way for party elites and people who have been, quote unquote, loyal to the party for a long time to exercise undue influence or an outsized amount of influence in the process. And the argument there is, well, we've been loyal to the party for this long. So, you know, we should have more say over what's going on than maybe some upstart or newcomer to the party who just joined, you know, in the last four years in order to try to get the nomination. So that played a big role in Hillary Clinton becoming nominated as a presidential candidate in 2016. But both the DNC and GOP have it. So if one of the candidates doesn't come into the first round of votes with sort of a majority of delegates pledged, then those superdelegates can step in and try to sway the outcome in the first round so that it is more definitive. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's so really all, complicated. Yeah, exactly. All all I want to say about about super, you know, it's funny you 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 said undue, and then you corrected yourself. And I think a lot of people feel like their influence is undue. And uh, you also mentioned that they, you know, they they had an impact on the 2016 election. And you know, from the the math, what's interesting is the math says they didn't. Hillary Clinton did come in with with pledged delegates from the you know actual primaries with enough that even if 100% of the superdelegates voted for Bernie Sanders, she would have still won, right? Which is an important thing to note. Um, and she had, you know, the clear, not majority, but plurality of, of support among, among just total, total Democratic voters, right? So if you just took like all the Democrats that voted in the primaries and counted them up, she had like 48% or something to Bernie Sanders is 40. And so she got more. And so what's the influence that they could have had if not mathematical? Well, there's this idea of momentum and bandwagoning. And so, you know, you can think about all sorts of the tricky ways that, that this can matter where let's say, you know, going into super Tuesday, you have a count of who has the most delegates, 
you know, delegates declared for them, right? Because superdelegates can sort of declare themselves at any given time. I know we're getting a little off these broker conventions, but here's why they matter. They can declare themselves at any given time. So if they all just pop up and declare themselves for Hillary Clinton right away and she gets all the endorsements and such, you know, imagine it's the news and you're looking at these two bars, right, of total delegates declared. And, you know, of pledge delegates, Hillary Clinton maybe has 20% more than, than Sanders. But if you add the superdelegates, she's got like three times more. And it's like, oh, well, this is over, right? I'm not going to vote for the loser. I'm going to vote for the winner. And, you know, the bandwagon effect is an observed thing. And so the influence that they had in some very difficult to measure way was that a lot of them declared themselves early for Mrs. Clinton. And so depending on how like the news published these graphs, right, if they just included the superdelegates, it looked like, you know, it, it, it might have looked like to people that, you know, if they didn't really clarify what was going on, that, you know, it might have implied that the, the Democratic-ish system of the primaries had Hillary Clinton way ahead. It's like, oh, you know, and people might assume way more people voted for Hillary Clinton than Bernie Sanders. What a loser. And, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> whatever. You know, and, and so it's that, it's that much more subtle not necessarily directly mathematical, but highly psychological uh, influence that the party has over, you know, over the outcome. And it's a, you know, it's a sort of check and balance that you can either think is fair because it's, you know, it's the party's party, right? These, it's their platform, you know, it's their, it's, it's their president and the people have an influence, but not the outright say. And so that seems fair and reasonable. Or you might, say, well, it's actually a good thing to have a little bit of aristocratical or oligarchical element into this and, and you know, and a check and balance of, of people who have been studying this stuff for a long time versus the people. Or you might say oh, this is bloody undemocratic and bad um, and that the will of the people should not only be listened to but not be messed with quite as much. You're, you know, you, uh, I'm sure there are even more opinions you can have on it than that. But one of the ways... Uh, you know, one of the reasons that this might happen is not only that the party has a favored candidate, but a party super duper does not want to have a brokered convention. Right. And they want to avoid this as much as possible, because if a brokered, brokered convention doesn't occur, then it runs the risk of creating a bunch of fault lines in the party. So it very much can reduce the likelihood that they win in the upcoming election Eric, you have this stat here that it yeah. reduces the likelihood of winning in the national election by 30%. Yeah, that's just by pure, you know, just by pure e easy math, right? So this isn't like a complex analysis. It's when there's a broker convention versus not, um, how do you tend to do? And the outcomes, the positive outcomes for parties with broker conventions or the, you know, the likelihood of, you know, just the past historical percentage of elections won by parties with broker conventions controlling for did the other party have a broker convention and who has the incumbent, if anyone. So controlling for those things, if you have a broker convention, historically, you've won 30% fewer of the uh, of elections than if you didn't. And so there's a clear trend that seems to have a good story behind it. Like the party is divided. The people aren't as excited, are as obviously excited. So it's harder to like rally the base and get them excited to go do stuff and, and 
you know, keep that surge and that enthusiasm for Canada. So uh, the impact seems to be real. At the same time, just because a brokered convention reduces the likelihood of winning in the presidential election by 30% doesn't mean that it's a slam dunk, right? There have been times in the past when a brokered convention led to that party's candidate winning the uh, presidential election. Totally. And I, I had some of these written down, but I don't, I, th- I feel like Harrison in the 1880s was one of them and Millard Fillmore was another, but don't quote me on that. I came across that in some of my research for this, but the point is that has happened too. Indeed. In fact, I'm just going to I'm just going to do it live right now. So uh, yes, broker conventions in which there have been victories. 1876 Hayes, 1880 Garfield, 1884 Cleveland, 1888 Harrison. So you have four broker conventions in a row in which the winner came from a broker convention. Worth noting that in 76, 80 and 84, again, this is the 1800s, the opponent was also from a broker convention. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wilson. Oh, yeah. Woodrow Wilson won the election in 1912 after a brokered convention with 46 bloody ballots, which is the second most ever. I know. Can you imagine? Warren G. Harding also won in 1920, but Cox uh, from the Democrats had also been in a broker convention. And then Roosevelt was the last president to win an election after it being brokered. There were four ballots and he he raced, he ran against uh, Herbert Hoover, obviously the incumbent. And and so you go like, oh, okay, so he won a, you know, he won a broker convention. Good for him. It was also during the Great Depression. And, you know, Herbert Hoover was was largely considered not doing a great job. So so huge, um, huge disadvantage for the home team there. And then the last three broker conventions, the candidate lost. This is Republican Wilkie in 1940, Dewey in 48. Remember, Dewey defeats Truman. That famous that famous uh, photo of Truman holding that newspaper. And then uh, Adlai Stevenson lost in 52. Oh, so we actually have a correction. So I'd written earlier that in 52, both parties uh, had a broker convention. That was not true. Eisenhower was what went, did not go into, did not have a broker convention. He had a open or, or contested or unclear convention, but the first ballot did get him through. So Adlai Stevenson lost to him because he had a broker convention with three ballots. So basically the win rate of, you know, I came from a broker convention and you didn't is three. 
And the loss rate of I came from a broker convention and you didn't is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So odds have not been historically good. There we go. Right. And, you know, we're fans, Dan Carlin, on this show. And a broker convention is probably something where Dan Carlin would say something like a broker convention could challenge the legitimacy of the parties themselves because it would shatter this this myth that's implied but not necessarily true that the process of picking the only two viable candidates for president is in fact a democratic one and if you have this convention process that's brokered where it you know the votes that occurred all throughout the different primary elections state by state don't actually end up mattering that runs the risk of you know challenging that idea of legitimacy yeah and so this is probably, you know, I'm sure there are like biographies and memoirs that get more into, hey, what happened in 1972, 1976 and 1980 in which, you know, in which we had these delegate shifts in the middle of the vote or in the middle of the first ballot to prevent it from going to a broker convention. So um, I'm speculating in a place where I could have knowledge, but I'm speculating that the, the, the historical damage of we had a broker convention. And the, and the fear of it for all these reasons, especially in an age with, I think, greater expectations of democratic uh, participation, you know, all, for all those reasons, that may have been why a lot of these delegates said, ah, F it, let's just vote for the person who's in the lead right now. And this desire for unity seems to also impact the voting party members. So not the superdelegates or the delegates, but the, you know, you and me in the street cast in our ballots, where there's this very strong sense of momentum that comes out of something like Super Tuesday, if you have a big lead. You know, there have been a lot of times in which, you know, kind of the public or like the media predicted there would be either a broken or a open convention since 1984, none of which had come to fruition. So people are thinking maybe 2008 between Clinton and Obama. Uh, certainly it looked in 1916 like there was a serious chance for a broker convention because Trump had the lead, but you had this stubborn never Trump wing of the party, but that it just outright eroded. Right. And, and that was the one where even I thought there are so many Republicans who hate Trump so much that they're just never going to let this guy, you know, they're going to do everything they can by hook and by crook to make it a broker convention. And then absolutely Trump is not going to be the person that these delegates pick, but we never got to, see that part of history unfold. That would have been interesting. So we're sitting here before the Iowa caucus, looking at the Democrats saying it's pretty divided right now. Maybe there's going to be a broker convention. Just worth noting that uh, this has been predicted many times at kind of this early state or even a later state of the nomination process. But this momentum, this bandwagoning, this snowballing effect tends to be pretty powerful in the last 30 years. And so, you know, this may all be a lot of hot air at this point. Who knows? Yeah. And part of the reason we like hitting all of this historical context is because I think it's a sort of inoculation against some of the sensationalism that you're likely to get in the coming weeks. Because there are so many Democratic candidates, then headlines like brokered convention is going to tear the Democratic Party apart sells, right? That is, that's something you want to read. It's, it's, Mm. I've read that article. I forget who, you know, what, what outlet it was from, but it's, it's interesting and it's good to know that that sort of thing could happen. It has happened before, but it's also good to know that if you look at probably the most data centric source for this sort of information, which I still think is 538, 
they were estimating that you're at about a 15% chance of that outcome happening. And lots of people in the past have predicted this happening and it hasn't come to fruition. And it's just kind of like a good reminder that, okay, yeah, this is a, a this is a possibility, but it's not an inevitability. And when you're talking in terms of likelihood, it's good to keep in mind what that actually means. So right now, it's still a pretty low likelihood, 15 to 16% or so, that no Democratic candidate wins a majority of delegates in the first round of voting. But that's higher than it often is. So context. Right. And so... You know, given that over the last 30 years, it's, you know, you've had these really straight shots, even when people in the past, you know, during, during those 30 years have either truly believed or, or at least made some money on pretending to believe that there's going to be a broker convention. You know, is, is there a real, you know, is there actually a real chance that it could be different this time? And why might it be different this time? And this is where we get into a little bit of very impossible to quantify stuff that we're seeing in the world right now or in the United States right now. And there's one structural reason and one kind of wobbly reason that a brokered convention or at least an open, you know, contested convention could be possible. So the structural reason is that most states in their primaries or even their caucuses award their delegates proportionally or somewhat proportionally. It's always a, it's always skewed to the winner. So, you know, you can get a majority of delegates by winning 40%. You know, if you win every state with 40%, you'll have a majority of delegates, even though you only won 40% of the vote. And so, the, you know, there's a skewing towards majority, but it is proportional, which means that if it's frequently close, like if you're getting 30, 30, and 30 all the darn time, and someone won by a little bit, and so they get a little bit more, but someone else wins by a little bit somewhere else, like it's going to, you know, it, it, there's a decent chance that, you know, that you're not going to be able to uh, pledge a majority or close to it. But then what's the reason? Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's that 30-30-30 thing. Will that happen? Right? Because in the past, you know, in the recent past, it's always come down to two. Bush v. McCain. McCain v. Santorum. Romney v. Santorum. Clinton v. Obama. Clinton v. Sanders. Trump v. Cruz. Right? There's only two serious candidates at the end. And so it meant that one was able to pull away. But what if we actually held on to three or four, right? So what if, you know, the people just weren't, there were enough people not willing to get on board with either the Joe Biden train or the Bernie Sanders train? What if the, you know, you have these multiple parts of the party where there's much more of a fight for the party's soul, you know, so you know, and and that's the part. Is there a war for the party's soul going on? Is it a more divided party than it's been in the past? Are there people who are really desperate for alternatives to Biden? You know, frankly, at this point, Biden and Sanders seem to be the ones who are a little bit ahead. And the people who haven't gotten on board with Biden and Sanders, they haven't found their unified candidate yet. You know, Warren took a shot. Buttigieg took a shot. Could it be Klobuchar? Could it be? Could it be Bloomberg? So. You might get this third person rising up as you start to get candidates to drop off leading up to Super Tuesday. And then this third person pops up and suddenly, you know, they've got there's there's another, you know, besides Biden and Sanders, there's another 50 percent of Democrats out there that are looking for who they're going to hone in on. And could that person go scoop up enough of those to be a viable third option? And if you have three options rather than two 
in a somewhat more divided party, it's going to be a lot harder to build a majority. So that, if there is a story of a broker convention, that seems the most likely one. Yeah, and we've chatted about party realignments before on a prior podcast episode, and Eric's actually written several articles on reconsidermedia.com about that same thing. So if you're interested in how that process happens, how the soul or spirit of a party has changed in the past, and potentially how it could Again, check out the show notes, reconsideryourmedia.com slash podcast. Find this episode and just scroll to the bottom. You'll find them there. So as Eric's already mentioned a couple of times on this show, our non-American listeners at this point might be thinking, holy smokes, how do you Americans keep up with all of this? And the short answer is we really don't. It's very complicated and there's a lot going on. And more often than not, the short, easy Sound bites kind of capture everyone's attention and all the detail and mechanics of these primaries kind of don't make it to mainstream media coverage. Not all the time, but a lot of the times. And as the primary unfolds, we need to keep in mind that the Democratic and Republican national parties are not government institutions. They're not bound by the laws of the Constitution in the way that an actual government entity would be. They can pick candidates basically however they want. They are technically private institutions. Once you get to the actual election and people are involved in choosing one or the other, that's when it becomes a governmental process. And you even see things like the GOP shutting down primaries to make sure that Trump's potential Republican challengers like Walsh or De La Fuente can't end up dividing the party and making it more difficult for a Republican candidate to win the election. And so far, seven primaries have been canceled. Yeah, and... For the others, those those other candidates are having trouble getting on the ballot. I forgot to write Bill Weld down there. So, you know, I'm, I live in Massachusetts. Former Governor Bill Weld, I'm sorry not to mention you. He is technically in the race as well. But look, it ain't, it ain't going to happen, right? So so it, it will be Trump v. someone. And the thing that is like really gnarly about this is that as we dig further into it, you know, we realize that, that there is... There is this, I think, sense that people have when they're not looking all that closely that we're that these this is a very democratic process. And as you start to look a little closer, you go, well, I don't know. And again, I don't want to say that this is good or bad. Now, I think I, I'm going to guess that I think if a lot of people suddenly had this disillusioning moment where they're like, wait a minute, this isn't very democratic at all, they'd be unhappy about it. And that would be bad, right? This sudden disillusionment would, would, or maybe it'd be great. I don't know. Dan Carlin would certainly want it to happen, but not that I, not that we should listen to everything Dan Carlin says either. You know, but, but it is worth kind of seeing how the sausage gets made to better understand how this process picks our leaders and picks the people who make laws and, and picks the person who, after, you know, a couple centuries of, of, evolution has become incredibly powerful. You know, that person who sits in that Oval Office. So this is all worth noting. And, you know, these days, it may be the case that the voting populace's tolerance for truly broker convention is is so low, you know, such that if anyone is like heading towards the convention with a clear lead, you know, again, kind of 2016 Trump style, hold your nose, cast the vote, make sure you're strong, because by God, you got to beat the other guy. Right. You got to beat the other team and that this siege mentality or this war mentality may mean that a lot of people kind of when it comes down to it are willing to compromise and say, all right, if this is our candidate, they're our candidate. Let's go. 
And, you know, there's certainly a lot of thought that the Democrats were less willing to do that in 2016. They may be more willing to do that now. Who knows? We'll see. Not our job to see too deeply into people's souls. But yeah, if a broker convention happens, you know, we won't be covering it live, but I'm sure we'll be talking about it. So just before we wrap up this episode, a couple of notes, a couple of uh, exciting announcements or mildly exciting announcements. One, this is now the second U.S. presidential election that we've covered on Reconsider. We've been rolling now since early 2016 or late 2015, actually. So we now have a lot of past episodes that are 100% relevant to what's going on in terms of how the processes work. Good point. Be sure to, and maybe we'll do like a recap episode of some of the content that's available on our website that you can get to. But what we definitely will do for this episode is link up to some of the prior podcasts that we have done or that we did back in 2016 or maybe immediately following the election in 2016 about how the two-party system works and how delegate math works because we have talked about that before. So we'll put that up in the show notes again, reconsidermedia.com slash podcast and look for this episode. Uh, Another exciting announcement is I was recently on a podcast called the Partly Political Broadcast Podcast with Tiernan Dueb. And we had a great conversation. Tiernan's actually a British comedian and he's really funny. I, I listened to a couple of his episodes before appearing on and he has this really unique talent of describing politicians in very unusual ways that are very funny. And we talked about everything from where geopolitics is going to go in the next 10 years, what's going on with the impeachment process right now in the U.S. and how U.S. domestic politics influences global politics. So check that out. It's the Partly Political Podcast. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, do give us a review on Apple, iTunes, or Google Play, or Acast, or wherever else you find our podcast, because that helps us go up in the rankings, helps us to get out to more people. If you're really feeling generous, hit up patreon.com slash reconsider, throw a couple of bucks our way. We use that money for marketing, basically 100% to try to get our podcast out to more folks. Yeah. And if you throw a lot of bucks at us, uh, we will work with you just like we did with Chris to get you your very own show so that, you know, you can get people reconsidering stuff that you like to reconsider on your own time. So uh, thank you to Chris and thank you to all of our ultra generous patrons, you you know, and, and just listeners and, and all the great people who write reviews and leave comments and, and just make this so bloody rewarding for both Xander and me. So, all right, let's let's uh, enough, enough gush. Let's get out of here. So remember, dear friends, dear listeners, as always, don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. And this is Xander signing off. We'll see you next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.